Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview. They're all after the family fortune, everyone. One of America's legendary entertainers. My problem is a man. Carol Burnett. Hold up, phone. Ain't that kind of drastic? For more than a decade, her popular variety program, The Carol Burnett Show, was a staple of American television. She was as beloved as she was successful. Oh, stop it, stop it. I don't want to hear any more about it. You're on the gamut of emotion. And a trailblazer for women in comedy today. Here. You could do things with your body and your face that no other talent could do. Where did you develop that? Well, I, just, I don't know. I am not really limber. Oh, come on. I couldn't stand up and touch my toes if, it, if my life depended on it. Buffalo girls, won't you come out? Now in her 80s, Burnett is still passionate about her work. It was overkill. And the state of the television industry today. I find some of the stuff that's on television today to be so childish, asinine, not clever. Tonight, the iconic Carol Burnett on The Big Interview. There was a time when Carol Burnett was the queen of American television. Memories of stepping on the squishy figs in the front yard. In the 1960s and 70s, the Carol Burnett show was dominant on Saturday nights. I'm gonna drive you insane and bring you A primetime powerhouse averaging 30 million viewers a week. By the time the variety show went off the air after a decade, it had racked up dozens of awards and helped to shape the popular culture of its time. Celebrity guests like Steve Martin and Betty White lined up to join Burnett in her sketch comedy. I like my women strong and greasy. <laughs> From Cher to Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five. Everyone played along in the extravagant song and dance numbers. How is it with you, Skip? The show was so funny that often the cast members couldn't help but laugh along. Oh, I get a hold of my sock once in a while, darn it. Among the most memorable skits on the Carol Burnett show was Went with the Wind. The gown is gorgeous. Thank you. I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. 
Burnett's curtain dress was designed by the well-known costume designer Bob Mackey, and it now has a place of honor in the Smithsonian collection. Carol Burnett is an American treasure, a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the prestigious Mark Twain Award. I sat down with Carol Burnett in Santa Barbara recently to talk about her life in comedy and beyond. Carol, Carol Burnett, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for asking me. <laughs> you know, as you sat down in the chair, a memory came to my mind. I was a CBS News correspondent, and it was another time in television, and another time for CBS. Mm -hmm. But you were... You were CBS. Well, uh, my initials were Carol Burnett Show, <laughs> CBS. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. No, but you, you, you were not just the, the queen of comedy, the first lady of comedy. You were the most important thing in the company. Well, I, I, thank you. I, I wasn't aware of it. I'm still not aware of it. First lady of comedy, though I have to correct you, is Lucy. And she was a very good friend and uh, kind of a mentor. Uh, however, I went the other way. Uh, I didn't want to do a sitcom where I would have to be the same person week after week. So I chose variety because of my background with the Gary Moore show. I wanted to be different people every week and have to and come out with wigs and blackout teeth and a fat suit and, you know, get a pie in the face and fall downstairs and jump out of windows. You know, <laughs> I was very physical. And... Um, and I remember when we were going to do our first show, uh, our producer, uh, Bob Banner, said, you know, people will want to know who you are before you get into all of these get-ups, you know, and change your looks and, and be different characters. And that's when we uh, started the questions and answers so the audience would get to know me as a person before I started to do all those outrageous things. Yes! Do you plan on making any more movies? Yes, I have great plans to make movies. Yes, the producers don't have plans to call me, but I have great plans. Well, being a woman, and keeping in mind what being a, a woman in the business, in almost any business, meant in the 1950s and 1960s, mm -hmm. when you were coming up, how did that define you as a professional? Or did it? I never thought about it. I was, wasn't into the business end of it, nor could I be confrontational. I was really laid back because I was the little woman, you know. And uh, I remember um, whenever there was a sketch that we might be doing that wasn't up to par, uh, instead of like Gleason or Sid Caesar or Milton Berle or some of those would say to the sketch writers, Gosh, guys, come on, this stinks. Now, come on, let's get together. Da, da. I couldn't do that. What I would do... Because would, you were a woman. Because I was a woman. I didn't want to get... See, a woman in those days really uh, was thought of as a bitch. If she, you know, whereas a man wasn't. He was aggressive. He knew what he wanted. So what I would do would be to say, uh, gosh, guys, can you come down and watch us do this? Because I'm not doing this right. Can you help me? Can you help me out? So I wasn't threatening. And that's the way I was raised. Now, today, I might not be bitchy, but I might be able to say, you know, this really isn't. Well, let's, you know, back to the drawing board, guys. Well, let me get back. 
we'll, we'll go back to the beginning because I'm really interested not only how and why you wound up to be uh, what the great Carol Burnett, but let me get back to being a woman in this period, 1950s, 1960s. And you, 70s. And yeah. reaching on through the 70s. Yeah. But particularly during the beginning time, did being a woman define what kind of comedian you became? Uh, in a way. Uh, because most of the comedians uh, what, that I grew up watching were in the movies, and they were the best friends of the leading lady. And they usually weren't that attractive. You know, and uh, I remember thinking, well, uh, this one's zany, this one's kooky, this one's that. So that's how I started out, is, you know, with the big mouth and the loud voice and all of that, uh, like uh, Martha Ray, the great Martha Ray, and Cass Daly. I mean, your audience probably won't remember some of these, but I grew up with them. And that's what a comedian was if she was uh, doing slapstick. Now, there were great uh, actress comedians like Carol Lombard and Irene Dunn and those people, but they were beautiful. Right. And so uh, I realized early on that I had to be, you know, I would cross my eyes in front of the mirror and my grandmother would say, quit doing that. Nothing's ever going to come of it. Stop it. I would Besides, make they may get stuck there. <laughs> that's right. I'd make faces and do all of those crazy things and all. And that's how I started out. And that uh, that's how I was quite a bit on the Gary Moore show. He gave me my first big break on television. And so I was a second banana and I would be kooky and zany and loud and crazed and all of that. Then when I got my show, I was that way at the beginning. Uh, we hired Lyle Wagoner, who was a very handsome announcer, for me to go, you know, go kooky over and you know, faint in his arms and all of that stuff. So, well, as I matured, I realized I don't have to do that anymore. I can still be funny, I can still be zany, but I can also do. I don't have to be that broad. That broad. You look at the first five years of our show. I was horribly broad. <laughs> and then I, uh, then we got to do more adult things like the, the family sketches always appealed to me, that crazy southern family that we did. Um, doing uh, uh, movie takeoffs, like uh, doing Postman Always Rings Twice, doing Double Indemnity, all, all those movies that I grew up watching with my grandmother going to Hollywood Boulevard. So you could spoof them in sketches. I totally spoofed them. I got, I got to be Betty Grable. I got to be Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce. And then I got a little bit more subtle, but still funny. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with the legendary Carol Burnett. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett came from humble beginnings. The daughter of alcoholic parents, Burnett and her younger sister were primarily raised by her grandmother, Mabel Eudora White. It was she who first introduced the future star to the magic of movies. Seems we just get started. And when Carol would eventually appear on screen herself, 
she would make it a point to send her grandmother a message at the end of every show. So long, good night. Tugging her left ear as a way to say, I love you. Did you always dream of being a, an actress or a, a no. comedian? Tell me, you grew up in San Antonio. Uh, we left when I was seven. Okay. And uh, I'd gone to Davy Crockett Grammar School. <laughs> and then we moved to Hollywood. We followed my mother out to Hollywood. But it was a million miles away from Hollywood. You know, we uh, lived in a one-room apartment with a pull-down bed, and I slept on the couch. And uh, the, we were on welfare. And uh, I remember Nanny, my grandmother, would save up all her pennies so that our big deal was to go to the movies. And uh, that was my, that imprinted me in a funny way of not being cynical because in the 40s, when I was growing up, in early 50s, the bad guys got it, the good guys won. And so I, I, I was never cynical because the movies weren't. And that, that was my upbringing. But what I wanted to do originally was to be a cartoonist and have my own strip, comic strip. And I created a family called the Josephsons. And it was a, the teenage daughter was Jody. Her brother was Joey. Her mother was Josephine. The father was Joseph. And the dog was Jojo. <laughs> <laughs> and I drew them, and it was all about Jody, the teenage girl. And then when I got to high school, Hollywood High, uh, I took. Uh, journalism course and uh, I became editor of the Hollywood High News and I wrote a column and all of that and I thought I would be a uh, journalist because I love to write and uh, then I got to UCLA and I was going to major in journalism but they didn't have a major in that and then I looked at theater arts English which would then give me playwriting courses and things like that so I majored in that, but when you majored in theater arts, whether it was English or whatever, you had to take acting, 1A, you had to take scenery building, you had to take lighting. So I got hooked on, um, in the acting class. Journalism's loss. <laughs> <laughs> well, then what happened was I was on, on campus and all of a sudden I was popular because I did a one act and a lot of the students came to see it and some of the kids that, who had already graduated and they were getting their master's degree. I'd never been popular. I was a nerd in junior high and high school. And well, they're asking me to have lunch and you know, all of this. And so one uh, afternoon, this, uh, one of the seniors came up and said, can you carry a tune? And I said, yeah, because my grandmother and mother and I used to sit in the kitchen and Mama would play the uke and we'd sing and harmonize. And I said, yeah. He said, well, we're doing a scene from Guys and Dolls uh, at the music department. Would you uh, come out and audition for it? And I said, okay. And, uh, so I did, and I got the part of Adelaide, who sings about being sick with a cold. And I thought, well, I can do that because if I don't hit a good note, I can blame it on the fact that the character has a cold. <laughs> and I, I thought, wow, now I, then more kids came up and you know, I, I was being asked out and all of this. And I thought, well, I want to go to New York and be Ethel Merman or Mary Martin. And um, 
course, we had no money. So I was in this opera musical comedy workshop group, and our professor, uh, Dr. Popper, uh, and his wife were going to sail to Europe, and they were being given a party by some uh, very rich people in San Diego, a black tie affair. And he said, there were nine of us in his class, he said, why don't you kids come down and you'll do your scenes as entertainment for the party. That's, well, yeah, you know. So in the meantime, we go down there and I did a scene from Annie Get Your Gun. And uh, it was very, the ladies were in formal gowns, the men were in tuxedos and all. Now I went to the hors d'oeuvre table and I'm looking around and I opened my purse and I'm putting hors d'oeuvres in a napkin to take home to my grandmother. <laughs> and I'm stealing all these hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> I hear a tap on my shoulder. I'm busted. And it was this gentleman and his wife. And they said, we really enjoyed your, uh, your performance and what do you want to do with you? I said, well, someday, you know, I'd like to go to New York. And he said, well, why, why don't you? I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to save up. You know, I, I was working as an usherette uh, for 65 cents an hour part-time at the Warner Brothers Theater in Hollywood. And he said, well, I'll lend you the money to go to New York. And I thought, well, it's a champagne talking, you know. And he said, no. And she said, no, no. He, he. So I went down to his office, back down to San Diego the following week, and he had a check written out for me for $1,000 now. Our rent was $30 a month. This was roughly what year? 1954. And uh, I'd never seen that many zeros in my life. He said, it's a loan, five years, pay it back if you can, um, no interest. You can't reveal my name. And if you are successful, you must promise to help others out if you believe in them. What a wonderful thing for him to do. Somebody had helped him get started. He, he, I think he was from uh, uh, the Philippines, and he became a very big, big uh, name in shipbuilding during the war. Now it's 1954. Mm -hmm. Are you out of college yet or not yet? I wasn't, but I quit. Okay. Because he said, I must use the money to go to New York on. It was 1954 when 21-year-old Carol Burnett decided to leave California behind. With the money she received from a generous donor, it was time to chase her dreams on Broadway. My grandmother didn't want me to go. She said, you'll, your blood's too thin, you'll be dead in a week. <laughs> Grandmothers talk that way. Yeah. <laughs> I said, but I have to use the money to go to New York. So I landed and I had a cardboard suitcase and I, uh, uh, Got, got a bus, or somehow I made it into the city, and I made it over to the Algonquin Hotel. And I got a room, $9 a day, and I thought, oh my God, you know, our rent was $1 a day in Hollywood. I started to cry, and uh, I called home, and Mama and my kid sister and my grandmother said, Come home, we miss you. And I, I started to cry. And uh, I said, I just got here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. And I hung up, and I, and I was weeping. 
And I love rain. I love rain. And it started to rain. And I turned on the radio, but the, and they were talking about a hurricane hitting New York, and it was Hurricane Carol. 1954 Hurricane Carol. And I thought, that's a sign for me to stay and not be afraid. And I had a name of a girl that had been in the musical comedy workshop, and she'd graduated, and she'd moved to New York, and she'd given me her name and phone number in case I ever got to New York. And I found that in my purse, and I called her, and she was living in a place called the Rehearsal Club which a stage door the uh, uh, play and movie was written about. And less than $9 a day. Tell me, I, she said, what are you doing in a hotel? Get up here. So I trudged through the rain, got up, uh, and she introduced me to uh, the lady who ran the place. It was very, very up and up and prim and so forth. There were 25 girls who lived there, and they had to be pursuing a career in the theater or they wouldn't be accepted. She put me in a room called the transit room and I had four roommates. Each one of us had a cot and a, and a bureau. And so I moved in and there were five women in this one room and um, it was $18 a week room and board. So that was a saving grace. And then I got a job as a part-time hat check girl in a ladies tea room. <laughs> Now that's not too bright, not too many women check their hats, you know, but. <laughs> so were you going to auditions during this uh, time? Yeah, cattle calls, uh, because I wasn't a member of equity, so you'd just go and you'd open your mouth and they'd go, fine, next, you know, and uh, so uh, I remember all the girls were out one night, it was raining, and I'm reading the newspaper on my cot and I see uh, the pajama game is advertised. And a friend of mine in Hollywood had lived in our building. He was an extra in movies and he'd been in a movie. He'd played a cop in a movie that starred Eddie Floyd Jr., who was then one of the stars of The Pajama Game. And I remember uh, Jack telling me that Eddie Floyd Jr. was a really nice guy. So I thought, huh, okay. Now, I'm talking about all these Mickey and Judy movies that I was raised on, right? So you got to take the bull by the horns. I put on my galoshes and my plastic raincoat, walked down to the uh, theater where uh, Pajama Game was playing, uh, went to the stage door, and the old guy there said, Hey, Eddie, this kid wants to see you. And he said, Yeah, kid, what do you want? And I, I think all in one breath. I said, well, uh, I'm from California, and I know Jack Shane. He was in a movie with you, and he said, you were a really nice guy, and I really want to get into the business, but I don't know how to get into the business because I can't get an agent. And the agent says, let me know when you're in something. I can't get in something unless I have any. I don't know what to do. And he gave me his agent's name and number, and he said, you call this guy and tell him I told you to call. So I did the next day. I went to see the, his agent. I took my scrapbook of UCLA reviews. And then he says, let me know when you're in something. I said, well, he's, I said, but that's, that's a catch-22. How do I do that? And he said, go put on your own show. I said, so I went back to the rehearsal club, and I called a meeting of the girls, and I said, we're going to put on a show. And we did. And we invited every agent, producer, director, everything in town. With, we sent them penny postcards uh, saying, you're always saying when you're, we're in something, you're come see us. So come see us. This 
postcard is your ticket. Well, this is pretty entrepreneurial on your part. Well, it's those movies, Dan. It's Mickey and Judy, let's put on a show. You know, it was just, as I said, imprinted that I, why not? So we did, and boy, people came, directors, producers, so forth. Even Marlena Dietrich was in the audience at one point, and Celeste Holm. Yeah, and uh, so three of us got agents out of it. I had auditioned for Rodgers and Hammerstein. They were going to do a, 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 a revival of Babes in Arms, and they were going to open it in Florida and then bring it to New York. And I came very close to getting the role of the gal who sings um, Johnny One Note. And it was between me and another girl. And I remember uh, standing next to her and hearing her, and she was great. And um, she got the role. And I, I don't know, something in me said, you know what? I wasn't discouraged. I said, it's her turn. My turn will come. It'll be my turn someday. But this is her turn. It interests me a great deal as to why that would be your reaction. Because with most people, and I'll be candid and say probably myself, one would have been crushed at least for a well, short time. I was for time. about a few minutes. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I thought I was going to end it. Then I, but something, and I, you know, my turn is going to come. The phone rang. I picked up the phone, and it was Bill and Jean Eckert who were going to do a little show called Once Upon a Mattress, off Broadway, directed by George Abbott. Mm -hmm. And would I come down and audition? Well, George Abbott a legend on Broadway then and even after his passing, still a legend. I, he was Mr. Broadway, Mr. Right. Musical Comedy. And when I left UCLA to go to New York, uh, some of the kids gave me a party and they said, what's going to be your first show? I said, it'll be with George Abbott. <laughs> Boom, you know, it was like, whoa. And I went down, took the subway down, auditioned, sang loud, and uh, took the subway home. The phone was ringing. I had the part. It was my turn. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with the legendary Carol Burnett. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett's on-stage debut as Princess Winifred in Once Upon a Mattress garnered her much praise. Carol Burnett. And it wasn't long before the producers of the popular 60s television variety program, The Gary Moore Show, came calling. I got a call that summer uh, from the Gary Moore office show wanting to know if I would be a regular on Gary's show every week. Another big break. Another big break, so I doubled. I was in Mattress and the Gary Moore Show for, a, for uh, almost a year. So you become very popular in the Gary Moore Show. Yes, and, and Gary, Gary really helped it. I mean, you know, he had us do a number from Mattress on the show, and uh, then my salary was raised because if we made $30,000 in ticket sales, I would get 500 a week. 
if we were below 30, I would get 80 a week. And then in the meantime, I was on Gary's show. So I was rolling in dough. I mean, I had, I mean it was incredible. I'd never seen that much money. So Gary's show has a good long run. Mm -hmm. You're an integral part yeah. uh, of it. How did that result, or was that directly responsible for you getting your own show? What happened was I, I was going to leave Gary's show because I was still wanting to pursue the stage. And um, my agent uh, signed a deal with CBS uh, for me for 10 years, which included, um, uh, which meant that I would do one special a year and two guest shots. And this was the caveat that was really, I don't think anybody ever had this before or since, for obvious reasons. He got it in the contract that if within the first five years of the 10 years, I wanted to push the button and have a variety show of my own, they would have to put it on the air 30 weeks, play, pay or play. And I said, well, I'll never want to do that. I'm Broadway, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I, that Gary was, you know, could host a show, I can't do it. Well, at the end of, close to the end of five years, uh, Joe and I are in California, and uh, we already have one baby. And uh, the last week of the fifth year was, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. We said, you know, maybe we should push that button. And uh, at least we'd get, you know, 30 weeks out of it. And CBS probably doesn't even remember they were committed to it. You're absolutely right. I picked up the phone. And I called one of the vice presidents at CBS. Hi, Carol, how are you? Uh, Happy New Year. Um, I said, I'm, I'm actually, Mike, I'm, I'm, I want to push that button. And he said, what button? <laughs> you know, and I said, well, you know where you have to, and I explained. Mm -hmm. And there was this long pause. And he said, well, um, yeah, I'll get back to you. Well, I know he called a bunch of lawyers out of Christmas parties and, you know, and call, he called back the next day. He said, well, yeah, Carol, but, you know, variety is a man's game. You know, it's Sid Caesar, it's Dean Martin, it's all the, you know, uh, Jackie Gleason. We can't see a woman doing an hour-long variety Exactly, show. exactly. And I said, but that's what I know. He said, well, we've got this great sitcom that we'd love you to uh, look at called Here's Agnes. <laughs> I could just picture it. Here's Agnes. You know. <laughs> and I said, no, variety is what I know. Variety is what I love. And that's what it is. And they had to put it on the air. And the Carol Burnett show was born. Mm-hmm. remember our first taping, we all got together and we said, you know what, we're just going to have fun. We, if we have fun and our studio audience has fun, chances are the folks at home will have fun, but we're not going to try to predict or second guess what an audience might want. And have fun you did. Yes, we did. For how many years was 11, it? Eleven. Eleven years. years, which is an age in television terms. After the, when the twelfth, eleventh year was upon us, I decided to quit after that because Harvey had gone over to ABC to do a show of his own. I missed him. Uh, and also I felt that we were kind of 
feeding off of what we had done in the past. Right. And I, I just wanted to quit before they went, stop doing this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I wanted to go out on my terms. And um, so we did. And, yeah. Well, looking back on those years, there were so many wonderful skits, but you must have your own favorites. I do. I do. I love doing the family, where I was poor, pitiful Eunice, who was uh, always in some sort of a rage. Uh, and Vicky played my mother. Of course, I'm 16 years older than Vicky, and she, she became my mom. I am going to get away from you, Mama. If I have to marry Ed Higgins by hook or by crook, you're going to marry that big dumb pluck over my dead body? I hope so. <laughs> I love those sketches because there were no jokes in them. Not that I'm against jokes, but these were character driven. Uh, and there were, there were no set up, set up, joke, laugh, you know, all of that. It, it came from within the characters. And uh, I love that. I love doing The Dumb Secretary with Tim. He wrote those sketches, Mrs. Wiggins and, and Mr. Tim Tudball. Conway. Tim Conway. The door is stopped. It's not stopped, it's a lock. And it's a going to stay locked. Okay. <laughs> At first, he had written it where she would be this kind of doddering old lady who was, didn't have it all together. And then our costume designer, the brilliant Bob Mackey, came up with the suggestion that don't play her as an old lady, play her as this blonde bimbo. Wow, watch out for the sonic boom. <laughs> whom the IQ fairy had never visited. And so that just made, made the character great, you know, for me. And uh, I loved, of course, all the movie takeoffs. And I loved the musical stuff, uh, the finales that we did, you know, and tributes to composers and lyricists. When you're at your prime, mm -hmm. week after week, I think everybody marveled, I certainly did, that you could do things with your body and your face that no other, no, no other talent, male or female, could do. Where did you develop that? Well, I, just, I don't know. I am not really limber. People think I'm. Oh, come on! No, you I'm see not. some of these skits. Come on. No, I'm not. I, I couldn't stand up and touch my toes if, it, if my life depended on it. I was kind of fearless. I just and. I never broke a bone. Amazing. I, uh, yeah. I mean, you look at some of these scenes now, you see, she must have been banged up all the time. Well, I got banged up, I got <laughs> bruised, but I never broke anything, which is amazing. What about the Tarzan, <laughs> as we'd say in Texas, Tarzan? Yeah, Tarzan yell. How yeah. did that come about? Well, I have a beautiful cousin. We were the same age, and she looked like a cross between Lana Turner and Carol Lomb. I mean, gorgeous, gorgeous. And we used to play. We were like sisters. And uh, so we would play Nelson, Eddie, and Jeanette McDonald. Well, guess who was Nelson? Okay. She was Jeanette. So when we played Tarzan, she was Jane. And I was Tarzan. So I perfected the yell. I remember when I was maybe nine or 10 years old. Well, I barely remember the Tarzan or Tarzan yell. Oh, you're not going to ask me to do it? I was going to ask you to do it. 
Well, I remember his, ah, uh, uh, uh. is well, that the way? That was, he, he, no, he just kind of, he would swing through the vine, you know, he'd get a vine and he'd swing through the trees. Okay, here we go, Dan, are you right. ready? Ready. Okay, the Lay sound, push the sound away. <laughs> <clears throat> I haven't done it in a while. <laughs> well done. And after that, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. Yeah. Carol Burnett remained a familiar face on screen well after the close of her long-running television show. She notably played Miss Hannigan in the movie production of Annie back in 1982. You could do something like that. And throughout the years, she and longtime friend Julie Andrews performed in a series of popular variety specials. She's also penned books and tours the country entertaining audiences. Why did I fly? Why did I fly? She has done various guest appearances on popular television shows. In 2010 with Jane Lynch in Glee. Would you be on my TV show? Oh. And more recently with her old friend Betty White on her show, Hot in Cleveland. It's John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Carol, I'm pleased to find that we have more in common than I thought. I knew, you know, it was at least born in Texas that yeah. I knew. I didn't know the full story of how I consider myself professionally somewhat a child of a hurricane, Hurricane Carla in 1961. <laughs> and you've fleshed out the story of Hurricane Carol, of all things, yeah. Hurricane Carol in 1954. But we also share this time at, uh, the time at CBS over the time. Yes, we do. What's the biggest difference that you see between television today and oh. television when you reign supreme with it? Uh, well, first of all, uh, there were only three channels. <laughs> you know, it was ABC, CBS, and NBC. And uh, now it's thousands of them. And also I find, and I'm not a prude, I'm not a prude, but I find some of the stuff that's on television today to be so childish, asinine, not clever. I miss the cleverness of an All in the Family, of a Mary Tyler Moore show, of Bob Newhart, of those kinds of that, those were cleverly written and uh, everybody could watch them and love it, you know. And uh, nowadays, it's, there are very few. There are some that are wonderful, but uh, mostly I, I, I watch cable shows. I watch the dramas, mostly. The comedies upset me. I remember, you remember, you know who, Larry Gelbart. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful comedic uh, writer. You know, he's right up there with Neil Simon. He said, the writers today of the sitcoms never played stickball in the streets. They are writing about life once removed. They grew up watching Father Knows Best, so now they're, watch, they're writing what they watched as opposed to writing what they actually what lived. What an interesting insight. I hadn't Isn't thought, it? I had not thought of that. You said you do watch uh, television. What do you watch? Oh, Breaking Bad. Woo! Uh, I love that. Um, House of Cards. Uh, now, of course, Masterpiece Theater. I'm hooked on all of that. 
There is a theory that I have heard put forth that this is a, quote, new golden age of television on cable. Right. I totally agree. I would love to do a cable movie, uh, some, you know, because I, the, that's where all the writers are going now, it seems. And why are they going there? Because uh, it's a dumbing down of the primetime television. I mean, when you can do a reality show for $1.98, you're going to do a reality show. The networks want to make money. And so the writers have freedom with cable. Yeah. Now, among the women who are mm -hmm. doing comedy, you must know all of them. <laughs> so it's hard to mention any one, but anybody oh, stand out? Well, of course, the obvious are uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and... Um, Jane Lynch, I think, is hysterical. When she was alive, I thought Madeline Kahn was brilliant. Could a woman of similar talent today, could she make it with a one-hour variety program on television? If, and would anybody put it on? Well, that's the problem. You couldn't do what we did because of the money. We had a 28-piece orchestra, live orchestra. We had 12 dancers. Uh, Bob Mackey did up to maybe 70 costumes a week. 70. No network is going to, today, with costs and everything, put that kind of money into it. It would have to be a different kind of variety show, but the talent is there. But with all of the laughs, Burnett's life has had its fair share of tragedy. Her daughter, Carrie Hamilton, struggled with drug addiction in her teen years. Carol and Carrie shared their story publicly in an effort to help other families who may be suffering with the disease. You went through a very difficult time with your daughter, Carrie. Yes. But you've talked about it, you've mm -hmm. written about it. Uh, in some ways, you've taken it to build a cause that you think can benefit other people. So tell me the story. Well, Carrie started to get into, she was, as a child, uh, she was, the most popular, and got the best grades in all through grammar school. She's your eldest child. She was my eldest, yeah. And uh, she was such a, a force in school and everything. It was wonderful. Well, when she got, uh, she started to shoot up and get very gangly, and she had braces on her teeth, and, you know, she was thin and uh, that awful teenage puberty thing, you know. And she felt very ugly. And uh, she got into drugs in, uh, when she went to high school uh, at about age 15, 14, 15. Are we talking marijuana or more It started drugs? with that, I guess, and then it got heavier, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joe and I were just terrified. You know, we couldn't, uh, we didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, we even at one point took the door off of her room. You know, as if that would do something. You know, and we finally we sent her to rehab, and uh, eventually, what happened was she was uh, she got well. She got sober just before her 18th birthday, and she went to Pepperdine, got into uh, acting. Uh, she turned out to be quite beautiful. Uh, once she got the braces off and fixed her hair, she was lovely and. Uh, funny, and then she got a, a regular role on um, the television show Fame, where she sang and danced and did all of that. And she called me one day, and she said, Mom, you know, with a 
the first book I wrote, the first memoir, was about growing up with my mother and grandmother and so forth. And she said, let's write a play together about those years, about Nanny and Mama and you growing up and my kid sister and so forth and what we went through in Hollywood. And so she wrote from her cabin. I wrote from L.A. And we would fax scenes back and forth. And then we finished the play. We called the play Hollywood Arms, which was the name of the apartment building that Nanny and I lived in. And then Carrie got cancer. And um, she fought long and hard. She, um, when she was in the hospital for the last time, I remember I was getting out of the elevator and going, walking down to her room, and one of the nurses came up to me. And she said, I don't understand your daughter at all. She said, she cheers us up when we go into her room. And she said, I asked her one day, I, I asked Carrie, how, how can you be so cheerful? And she, her reply was, every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide is the key word. Right. I wake up and I decide, today I'm going to love my life. And that was her mantra. Yeah. And she eventually passed. Yeah. She passed away before we had our premiere in Chicago. So I had to do all the rewrites that, you know, and all. And I just kept saying, okay, Carrie, you're going to be on my shoulder here. But that's the fact that I, I had to do that saved my life, Dan, because I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to sleep. I didn't want to wake up. But it was this work on the Hollywood Arms. Uh-huh. The project that you'd started that with her. That saved my life because my husband, Brian, said, you owe it to Carrie to do this. And that's what did it. When you talk to, to people, to audiences and to mm-hmm. groups of people, what message do you want them to take out of what you tell them? Well, if see, Carrie's life was not all drugs. It was three years of her life. you know. And so I don't want people to think that's all I had with her, you know. But when Carrie was uh, uh, getting out of rehab, I was asked, how was I able to deal? I realized I had to let love her enough to let her hate me and put my foot and put her into rehab. And she screamed and, wow, oh, she hated my guts, you know. But that was, and I realized that's the disease talking, that's not Carrie. You know, there's so many parents and grandparents who've had some version of this with their own children or, or No, it's so common. It's, uh, it, it, unfortunately, it's yeah. become so common. When you finally decided, listen, I have to put her in a rehab, mm-hmm. and I have to, I have to understand she's going to hate me. Love her enough to let her hate you. Love her enough to let her hate you. At that time, because you, you'd been a, a busy mother, did you find yourself feeling guilty? Did you say, what did I do to yeah. cause this? Oh, always, always. The thing with our show, though, was interesting. We had a school schedule. Uh, somebody once asked me, how many hours a week do you work on the Burnett show? I would have thought it took 80 or 100 hours a week. 30. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. How did that work? How could that be? Well, we were, we all, uh, my show came, a lot of the people came from Gary's show, which was a live show. 
and we did it that way. We did. We would go into rehearsal Monday. We'd read the script at ten o'clock. I'd take the kids to school. Mm-hmm. Ten o'clock, we'd read the script. Uh, then we'd have lunch. Then we'd um, put a couple of the sketches on their feet. I'd be out by three. In time to be pick there. The kids. I could pick. And we always had dinner together every night at six o'clock, except for the nights we taped. And that's the reason you called it a school schedule. School schedule. So you had a lot of time to spend with. Totally. But when, when younger parents say to you, Carol, you went through this. Mm-hmm. Give me a piece of advice. Give me something I can use. Give me something. That well, don't will try help to me. be their best friend. That's what I tried to be at first. I tried to, you know, be sweet and lover and this and honey, you know this is a good. Forget it. You are the enemy when it comes to that. The three years were hell. But uh, once she came out of it, she had a career. She had a mindset. She was, and she would talk to high schools. She would go and talk to high schools. I have letters that some of the schools sent me that their students had written about her talks. Wow. What a story. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shift gears again. Mm-hmm. Again, you've been so generous with your time and with yourself. I'm looking at one of the remarkable entertainment characters and personalities of the last half century plus. But who are you, Carol Burnett? <laughs> who are you really? I mean, you're a great performer, you're a great entertainer, you're a great talent, but, but who are you? Do you know who you are? No. No. I mean... Not really. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough thing to figure out. I know what I am, I know I, I'm nice. I would never hurt anybody's feelings on purpose. I try to be kind. And I get, I get a, a good feeling out of helping others out the way the gentleman said I should. And I've done that, and I, I get a reward. That gives me a good feeling, so maybe it's a little selfish. <laughs> well, the closest I can come, being honest with you and saying, if somebody, when someone asks me, who are you, who are you really? Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult question to answer. Yeah. But sometimes I say, well, okay, how do I want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? Oh, that I would like to be remembered for bringing somebody uh, a little relief from you know, when they feel bad or anything that, that they laughed at us. A little pinch. A squeeze. A tickle. <laughs> a tease. Seems we just get started, and before you know it, that uh, we made somebody happy at one point when they were feeling down. I would like that. You deserve that. Thank you. <laughs> Carol, thank you very thank much. You, Dan. So it's so nice thank to you see so you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.